Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Mark is on assignment today. We're going to go right to our return to civility because we all need to be civil in this age today. The first thing it says is we need to learn when to keep quiet. Take a break and give yourself the luxury of listening to someone else speak. You know, what's very interesting about that is many times people are formulating an answer to something that someone asks, or they're thinking about more of what they want to say, and they're really not tuning into the person that they're listening to. Eye contact is huge, you know, and that's one reason we like to have live interviews, because I like to look at the guests that we have. I will respond to their their eye contact. I'll respond to their their body language, and I'll know when not to break in because they're in the middle of taking a breath rather than they're done with a sentence or a thought. So things to think about, folks. When Learn when to keep quiet. Take a break. Give yourself the luxury of listening to someone else speak. Matter of fact, we're going to listen to someone speak today, and he is in studio, which I'm very glad. And I want to want you to make sure that if you don't catch all of the show, that you catch it on the podcast, which we'll post. We'll also replay this next Tuesday. But this is a show that I believe you really need to connect to. We're going to talk to a gentleman who had a 1% chance to live back in 1987, and I'll let him tell his story specifically. But over the course of time, his perspective and inspiration changed to the point where he is a two-time national best-selling author, instant number one best-selling author. He has spoken to more than one million people in 49 states and 17 countries. He's the host of a podcast with more than 1.2 million downloads. Amazing guests like Dave Ramsey, Joe Buck, Ozzie Smith, Kurt Warner, etc., etc., etc. Another big thing I know that he's proud of is he's the proud husband and father of four and resides right here in St. Louis, Missouri. John O'Leary, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Arnold, what a joy to be with you, man. Thank you for this. It's fun. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I I caught your stuff on the podcast and was like, why haven't I heard about this guy? Obviously, because I haven't looked. But <laughs> the things that you do are so inspirational. Let's get right to it. Your story that changed your life, that kind of set your life on a course. Uh, discuss what happened back in 1987 so people have an understanding that you're just not some Joe who, like, yeah, he's an inspirational speaker. Great. That's wonderful. We have a lot of those. This guy is totally different, folks. you got to listen to it. Yeah, and instead of starting in 1987, I'm going to start in, like, 2006. Okay. Because until that point, the story you're actually asking me about was one that I would have never answered the story you're asking about was one that I was embarrassed by, that I tried to cover up. I tried to put masks on to hide from. And then in 2006, a little girl in St. Louis County asked Mr. John, that's your guest today, to share his story in front of a Girl Scout troop. And although I'd never been on a podcast or a radio show, although I'd never given a speech, although I'd never told anybody how I got burned, I, I said yes to her and then uh, to those three Girl Scouts in the room with her and then yes to one of their dads and then yes to one of the Rotarians in the room and then yes onto a couple million people afterwards. So that, that ability to finally say yes to your life story is key, 
not only whether you're going through a burn experience, like we'll talk about here in a moment, but mm-hmm. when you go through the journey of life, as you listen to the possibility in, in front of you. So back to the original question, 1987, I'm a nine-year-old kid growing up in DePere, Missouri. I see boys in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And I figure if these little guys can do it, so can I. So Arnold, Saturday morning, dad's at work, mom's out. She's a school teacher like your wife. Mom's out. The house is mine. I walk into the garage, bend over a can of gasoline, try to pour a little bit of gasoline on top of the fire, just a little flame. And before the liquid even comes out of the five-gallon container, the fumes come out of this can. Massive explosion. Splits the can in two, picks Mm. up the nine-year-old boy, and launches him 20 feet against the far side of the garage, setting my world on fire. That's the starting point of this epic journey. That's You were in the hospital for, what, five months? Yeah, a little more than five months. And you had a lot of people praying for you, intervening in your life, in your family's life, because you have five other siblings, is that correct? Yeah, so when I look at the story that you and I are talking about today, what blows me away by it is not all that I did and how great I am and how resilient and faithful, but how great the community here in St. Louis and beyond is, how remarkable and faithful and loving my parents were, my siblings remain. So when I tell this story or write about the story, even you and I were talking off air about On Fire, mm-hmm. when, when the publisher first produced that, there's a picture of me wearing a suit on it arms crossed looking at the reader like look at me people i am hand doggedly handsome and resilient and faithful maybe if you get to the final page you will be too so i sent it back and i'm like guys read the book before you create an artwork for the front right and so now when you look at the cover it's it's mere letters they they look like fire but if you look more closely it's foil wrap Hmm. so that the readers themselves can see within themselves as the star of the story Hmm. not not the celebrity but as a contributing character in someone else's story, including their own. So I, I've been surrounded by remarkable human beings. Looking in the mirror, reflection, in a pond, something like that. Well, why don't people reflect as much as they need to do? Yeah, I think we're pretty busy looking down, sometimes at our feet, sometimes at the dirt, sometimes at a two-inch screen looking at somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. But we spend an awful lot of time looking down rather than looking out or looking up. And so uh, as a little guy, you know, you mentioned my mom and dad. You, you also mentioned, as you kicked us off today, this idea of listening, mm-hmm. which few of us do well, myself included. But I was listening to my mom at a Bilkin game last weekend, and we were talking about her little boy celebrating 35 years of this burn event, this tragedy, losing fingers, losing physical perfection, five and a half months in hospital, years of surgery, a lifetime of physical challenges. And we're, we're talking about her side of the story and the people who showed up for her during that time. And mm. going through, Arnold, the people who showed up for her, they were names, your listeners will know, like Jack Buck and Gino Cavallini and Gene Stallings, the head coach of the football Cardinals, and Ozzie Smith and uh, Pope John Paul II, Ronald Reagan and a, a lady named Nancy. Like, man, the global community came around this little boy and his family. So I asked my mom, of those people who do you remember most? What was the most impactful visit you ever had, Mom? Which of those celebrities? And what did they say, Mom? And she, you know, we're watching the ball game. But then she looked back at me and she says, John, it wasn't any of those. And so I'm like, well, who was it? And she started telling the story of um, on a Monday evening, I had been kind of out of my mind for the previous three days. After going through three months of unendurable pain, 
sometimes your body starts to kind of collapse on itself and the mind starts to do likewise. Right. So I, my mind is just not trending anymore. It's not following reality. And so I'm hallucinating. I'm, I'm seeing fish all around me. I'm just having these mm. wild dreams while awake. And the doctors have shared with her that night that I may never come back. Even if I physically survived this fire, my mind may not. It's just been a really difficult three months for this little boy. So she leaves this little guy's room at around midnight. It's dark in the waiting room. She's crying by herself, and she turns the corner. And in the waiting room by himself was a 26-year-old English teacher, back to your old life, named Don Lee. Don Lee was teaching my brother English at DeSmet Jesuit High School. And what he would do every night is he would grade his papers in the waiting room of this burn center at St. John's Mercy, right up the street from mm. where he taught. And so from about 10.30 to 1 o'clock, he would just grade papers on the chance he was ever needed. And this night at midnight, mom walks out. She's broken. She's crying. She's losing hope. She turns the corner. There he is in a darkened waiting room by himself. So I said to her, mom, what did he say? And she corrected me again. And she goes, he, he didn't say anything. He just listened. He listened as I cried. He listened as I prayed. He listened as I dreamed. He just listened. So your encouragement to your listeners and to me is the right one. We, we long to be more like Jack Buck and be able to broadcast the, the game just right, articulately enough. But I think the higher calling in our lives and the rare reality is to be the kind of friend and servant who comes alongside of others and listens well. And you also mentioned that it is out of mistakes that many times we feel that, oh, I've blown it. But those are opportunities, or my words now, forks in the road in which we can, it may be a blessing in disguise. Always. And it, it's only embraced in choosing it, right? So it's not just accidental happenstance living. It's in choosing to celebrate that fork, the, the journey we made, both the good decisions and also the weaker decisions, like blowing yourself up at age nine, that, that allow you ultimately, Arnold, to harness the power within your life still. Those choices, though, John, how do you get to a point in which you say, yes, I'm going to embrace that mistake that happened, because that's not something I think that's natural to us. Right. I think we always, and you mentioned this about the mask, we always like to hide our our imperfections and, and, and put on a good front to people, which is natural, but to make the choice to deliberately go down that, is that something that has to be learned along right. the way, or is that something you're taught in your family or in your school or in yeah. your church or where? The, the answer is yes to the, the multiple choice that you get, A, B, C, or D, and I'm, right. I'm circling E. All of the above. <laughs> That's right. It is all the above. It is learned. It is taught. It is experienced. It is failed from and then also ultimately embraced back into, you know, Jesus, when he, when he does miracles, usually ends the miracle with words like, pick up your mat, mm -hmm. wash your face. Like, it, it's action. Mm-hmm. It's so that, that inflection point where the choices are placed in front of you, and then you ultimately must decide. I'd like to briefly share two stories that sure. were placed in front of me as a little boy. The, the first, on the day I came into hospital. So I'm at St. John's Mercy on the first floor in the ED. My mom walks in. She takes my hand in hers, pats my bald head, and she says, I love you. And I'm nine. I'm naked. I'm skinless, and I'm dying, and I'm scared. So I look up at my mom and I say, mom, knock it off with the love. Am I going to die? Am I going to die? And here's her choice. And how do you respond? And if I'm that mom, if I'm that kind of caregiver, it's easy. 
Mm-hmm. You respond with love and grace. You say, no, you're not going to die. You're fine. We'll get you out of here. We'll swing you through steak and shake on the way home. And get that milkshake. And get the milkshake, man. Or cheeseburgers and french fries. <laughs> or all of the above, man. Get the meal. But that day on January 17th, 1987, that's not what she said. She looked away from me for a moment, looked back and said, baby, do you want to die? Mm. Because this is your choice. It's not mine anymore. And I remember looking at her kind of surprised at first and then back into her eyes. I said, mama, I don't, I don't want to die. Jeez, I don't want to die. I want to live. And her beautiful response was good. Look at me, honey. Take the hand of God, walk the journey with him, and you fight like you never fought before. She said, you are not alone. Your father and I will be with you every step along the way, but do your part. Mm. Fight. And so I mentioned I would give you two stories because the first one was kind of the movement away from death, mm-hmm. this choice to move in a different direction. Mm-hmm. The second one is like the bookend of the story. It's five and a half months later. It's the day I came home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. And she made my favorite meal. They rebuilt our house. Thank you, community here in St. Louis and beyond, for helping us put the house back together, take care of my siblings while they were homeless, love my parents while they were struggling. So we, we finally come back into this house, though, as a family. The dog's there. My five siblings are there. My father's at the left. My mom's at my right. Favorite meal in front of me, Arnold. The problem is I don't have fingers, so I don't have a chance here. So my sister, Amy, this wonderful caretaking lady, she's 11 years old back then. She grabs a fork and starts to put the meat on the fork, bring it toward my mouth. And right as it's about to enter in, my mother looks at Amy and says, Amy, drop the fork. If John's hungry, he'll feed himself. And she's saying this about a little boy who is disabled, who is a victim who has no chance at life anymore. I mean, look at him. It's pathetic. He can't move. He, he can't hold anything. He knows it about himself. Just ask him. He will tell you how broken his life is. Ask him. And that day, I look at my mom and I say, how? It's not going to work, mom. And I say, Amy, feed me, please. And my mom says again, Amy, drop the fork. If he's hungry, he'll feed himself. Mm. And I'll make a very long story and a very ruined dinner very quick for your listeners and for you today. Two and a half hours after the dinner began, The fork is finally wedged between this little boy's hands. I'm sitting in a wheelchair on morphine, moving the fork toward my mouth, looking at my mother with hostility and anger. But the key here, Arnold, it gets back to your original question of choice. I'm feeding myself. Mm -hmm. I'm doing something that previously I thought would have been impossible, not only on that day, but for the rest of my life. That day, my mother reminded me that it would not be easy, but it was possible. To live. To live. That's a great way to say it. To because live. she she's not going to be around all the time for you to do what you need to do. And and from that moment, was that the springboard to you really finding something within yourself to press forward and to, my words, get back to what normal is? Right. Well, so I'm still seeking normal 35 years plus one and a half months after this event. Some people, we don't even know what normal is. Well, yeah, that, that might be be part of the journey, Arnold, for both of us. (laughs) So yes and no. I mean, life is really a yes and always. Like it's yes and it's so it's, we think it's the Democrats or the Republicans who is right. Right. And the awkward truth is yes. Like we need the tension of the two to draw us forward together. 
And that's unpopular. I won't get elected saying that, but that's the reality. We need the tension of the two sides to draw us forward into truth. So was it the one moment? No, I needed that one moment, but I needed the following moment also to get out of bed the following day. And then eventually to go back to school and learn how to play the piano without fingers, then learn how to write, then learn how to eventually love yourself and Mm -hmm. take the next right step forward into life. So it is a, it's a cascading journey into life of, of choosing the next right step. You mentioned love yourself. That's an interesting statement because many people struggle with that because of disability or because of how they've grown up or family situation or abuse or things like that. How are you able to love yourself and kind of press on then with that and encourage other people? Right. Well, it's very difficult to encourage other people, honestly, if you don't first love yourself. I think now in society, we're talking and writing and sharing a lot around happiness. Mm -hmm. And I'm candidly not that big into happiness, not individually and certainly not as a husband or as a father. I think happiness is very fleeing. Mm -hmm. Happiness is the ice cream cone. Right. And then it melts and your kids get mad. Happiness is giving them the iPhone that they want and then they break the screen the following day and that's ruined. Happiness is climbing the ladder only to realize you had it against the wrong wall. So happiness is oftentimes fleeing from us. What I pursue both in the reflection in the mirror and also as I try to teach and serve and love others is joy. Mm. And joy is far more of a mindset. You can have it when you are on top of the ladder, but you can also have it when you're holding it for others. You can have it when your life is seemingly going perfectly and you've got the Valentine's Day date ready to rock and roll next Monday. And you can have it while you're sitting by the phone waiting for the phone to ring next Monday. So I am pursuing through my life and through my lessons to those that I serve joy. So I I think that one way to love yourself is to choose to embrace the reflection for all of its perfections and imperfections that come back to you in the mirror. So you have to look for the little things that you can find joy in. And everybody has little things that they can find joy in. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And I... You mentioned in the introduction to me, which I'm, I'm flattered by, 49 states John has spoken in front of. Where's that fifth? Where's that one? We're looking at you, Alaska. Okay, okay, so I know we got a lot of listeners tuning in from Juno today. So Juno, we're <laughs> coming your right. way next, people. Yeah, Fairbanks, They're, don't forget. That's right. <laughs> Nome, Nome, Alaska. <laughs> yeah. The dog sled race in O'Leary are coming your way. <laughs> So no, Alaska is is the one state on the on the board we've not yet hit. In addition to those states, those 17 nations, and many of those nations not first world, mm-hmm. I have found when I'm with people that have the least, mm-hmm. that they find joy in the little things they do possess, mm-hmm. whether it's in nature or laughter or the, the seemingly minutia of the day, that's where these individuals find the greatest joy. And, and I think there's something we in the first world nation can learn from those who find it and discover it and then celebrate it in the little things of life. You know, that leads me to a question that I actually had written down. Are we a thankful and grateful people? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll get in trouble for this. So you may, you may want to step away from the radio for a moment and uh, you know make yourself a, a latte. You know, the, the latte did not taste right. F- fine. I, I think we have so much that we are at risk of, of losing focus of how much we have. Mm-hmm. Whether you look historically... I mean, read your your grandparents' biographies. Mm. And if that's not turning you on, read your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. We are trending up and to the right. FDR 
spoke in his fourth inauguration. Some were concerned about Trump. I, I get that. But in his fourth inauguration, people, <laughs> please, this is part of our history. He looked out at his nation, a nation that is at war, a nation that is in the midst of a historic strife that we, we can't fathom today. You know, Tens and hundreds of millions of people struggling profoundly. And he says this, if you draw a line between the peaks and the valleys over the course of centuries, you will find that that line always trends up. Mm-hmm. If you f- draw a line between the peaks and the valleys of the course of centuries, that line trends up. And as a people who have found themselves on the very tippity top currently of that line, it's very easy to look down at all the things we do not have and how broken and miserable our life or our collective lives are. And so one thing to do as we look at our life is to look historically at our life. It has never been better than it is right now. And I'm not a Pollyanna saying, wow, aren't we lucky? But let's be pragmatic about it. Right. We, we have never had in the history of the world a better life than the one we have right now. Imperfectly so, but it is good. And I would suggest it's getting better. So then as you look at not the lens of society, which is trending up, but also the lens of your personal life, it's really important to give a honest look in the mirror and to celebrate the little things. Because if we don't celebrate the little things, Arnold, we will be unable to take inventory also of the big things we have. Taking inventory of the big things. Considering the things that, you know, on a checklist that we may find in, in life, like, you know, graduating from high school or college or getting married or landing that big job and, you know, all those kinds of things that many people have on a, like a little bucket list to check off. Right. But for a lot of people, those have eluded them. And, you know, maybe their, their bucket list is, I'm getting through this day, okay, we've, we'll have food for tomorrow, or... I don't know, I'll have to wait another hour for the bus to take me to my job or my appointment or something right. like that. You know, perspective is a very important, it's not a concept, but a reality. Yes. And you really have to be uh, tuned into that quite a bit. That's one reason we call this, this show St. Louis In Tune, yeah. because frequency off, off the frequency on the dial, you don't, you're not getting everything clearly. Or in the musical analogy, if you're a little sharp, you're a little flat, you're not in tune with, with what's going on. How do you keep yourself in tune? Because you have spoken to all these people. You do this regularly. You, have, you had a great podcast yesterday where you had the um, Jamaican bobsledder on. And I, I love to see those guys, you know, they, they roll. And when you pour yourself out, you have to keep filling yourself up. Or when the fire starts to go down in you, you have to kind of keep yes. the fire stoked. How do you do that, John? <laughs> well, in these days we live in, I mean, a global pandemic is upon us. It just is a, a reality. We are living in a time of profound isolation, uh, suicide ideation, and the reality of attempting to take your own life. Last year here in the United States, 1.6 million Americans attempted suicide. So let's acknowledge the fact that life is hard. So psychological immunity, how, how do you prepare yourself for the difficult days that you face right now and face into the future? I think what you say no to is as important as what you say yes to. You talked a moment ago about comparing yourself, comparing yourself, comparing yourself. Well, if you are looking down at your phone at someone else's life all the time, the life that you find yourself living will frequently feel hollow to you, and it will not stack up to your friends who are on the beach right now or they're on the ski trip or they're living the good life right now. So one thing I do is I don't do social media. Professionally, I participate in sharing the good news, Mm -hmm. and then I pull away. Mm -hmm. 
So I think one thing, if you're trying to get a little bit healthier, you talked about tuning in. What you tune into influences your day. Absolutely. So if your day starts off negatively, if you are always saying the media is all bad, they're always telling me how bad it is, who's making you listen to it? Who forced you to listen to Fox or MSNBC or CNN? Who's making you do this? And if it's not working for you, opt out. Tune into Arnold instead. You will find a message that is far more life-giving and based in truth than you might on networks that are compensated highly for selling bleach and Tide and baby wipes. So just just rec- recognize this is entertainment. It may not be truth, so choose wisely. So I think opting into what you say no to is important. And then secondly, I know we're going to go to break here in a moment. I have a very faithful lens with an eternal glance. I'm not looking just at the next election cycle or the next speech I might give or how my kids' report cards might come in next quarter. Mm-hmm. If you have a very long glance of your life and of our lives, it changes the manner in which you show up in this day. It Mm -hmm. gets you far more focused on the things you can control and liberates you to let go of the things you cannot. Wise words. We're going to go to uh, our next segment in a moment. But if you want to get more about John, John O'LearyInspires.com, John O'LearyInspires.com, and you can find out more about John. We're going to come back for our next segment. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston on the U.S. Radio Network. You know, each time that we plan a show for St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's STL intune.com there you'll find every show from our first to our most current use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered and drop us a line and tell us how we're doing you can do that at stlintune at gmail.com that's stlintune at gmail.com st louis in tune heard monday through friday on the u.s radio network.com and many great radio stations around the U.S., and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been having a conversation with John O'Leary. He's a best-selling author. He has two best-selling books, and he's actually working on a third right now. He has spoken to more than a million people in 49 states. He's working on Alaska folks up there. (laughs) 17 countries, 
has a great podcast, which you need to check out, and a proud husband, father of four, and lives right here in St. Louis, Mo. And he spoke to us previously about, he said, focus on joy. He said, say no as much as you say yes, which is a hard thing for people to do, because I think we don't want to let people down. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to move a little bit, John, to uh, some thoughts on your speaking engagements and, and how you do coaching and uh, things like that. Have you noticed patterns of need between institutions when you've given talks? In other words, when you speak to an educational institution or when you speak to a corporation or another business group or maybe it's a governmental entity, have you noticed across the board that there are patterns of need that each group is kind of asking you to speak about? Yeah, what a great question. So I'll answer that by letting you know, as a man who's been sharing his story very slowly at first and now a a little bit louder over the last couple of years, my great concern in in speaking was always, what happens if I leave St. Louis? I mean, your your message, our, our show today, we're primarily a St. Louis audience. A lot of what happened to John O'Leary happened right here in St. Louis, and it was nurses here in St. Louis. It was tutors and teachers here in St. Louis, doctors here, the Cardinals here in St. Louis, St. Louis story. So my first time in Belleville, oh, will will Belleville embrace this message? And my gosh, they did. But then Chicago called. And they brought me up for a computer comp- company, and I'm oh my gosh, will they will they follow along? And they did. And then the coast started calling, and then oh my gosh, Toronto, Canada, would it work way up north? And it did. And then we had an opportunity to go to Mexico, and then throughout the Caribbean, and then throughout South America, into the Middle East, in, into Asia, throughout Europe. Every single step along the way, I wondered with with this message, a St. Louis message, would it work? And the answer globally has been yes. So then back to your question, John, are there needs similar between educa- educators and computer programmers and leaders and frontline employees? The need is the same everywhere you go. Now, how you ultimately achieve success with those organizations and with the individuals who make it up, that changes a little bit. But the need ultimately is to recognize as a human being their life matters, mm. that there's meaning here, that the things that ultimately allow them to go into work, it's usually not the brass ring. It's usually to get themselves and those they love a better life. It's usually to live out their meaning and their focus for a cause even greater than themselves. We do that as educators. We do it as nurses. We do it when we work as custodians on hospital floors. We do it in all these areas of life. And so I remind them of the dignity of their work. And I'm not the first to do it. One of my favorite Martin Luther King Jr. speeches was given in Philadelphia. And he spoke it not in front of a group of nurses or teachers, but Sixth graders, you, you're nodding your head already. We know that speech well here. When he shared, if it falls upon you to sweep floors, sweep them, and then he goes on to, to give this elaborate gift so that all the heavens of hosts will stop and say, there lived a great street sweeper who right. swept their floors well. When he spoke those words in front of middle schoolers, they applauded. Today we would boo. Because that, that is humbling work. No, it's beneath me, certainly. And yet Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us of the dignity of whatever job you do, man, do it well. Right. Do it well. And back in the 60s, they needed that reminder and they celebrated it. We've lost touch with that truth. And so I remind them, whatever job they do, you do it well because it matters. Mm-hmm. It changes lives. It saves lives, literally, including the one doing the work. So time period, back to the last segment where many of us have lost the value of our lives and many of us are 
wondering, is it worthy? And we feel like we're doing this by ourselves and despair is creeping in. Your life matters. Now your job is to act like it. And that message plays in any audience that you might put me in front of. Your life matters, folks. It really does. Otherwise, you know, in a corporation, in an institution, otherwise that job wouldn't be there. Right. I I wonder sometimes, uh, as as you go to groups and speak, matter of fact, an example, you went to speak to a group down in Dallas, Texas, I believe it was. Uh, Roger Staubach had an organization, and you wanted to get a feel for helping direct your comments, and you asked someone who was, I think, kind of let you in the door or something right. like that, you know, what's, what's the organization like? And you just kind of get in a feel. You know, how often uh, do you do that, and or do you get some preliminary information from a group, or how right. does it focus exactly? Because sometimes there's a, a niche kind of a niche kind of thing going on that yes. you really need to fill that need, or sometimes it's just a general, like you were talking about, like your life matters, which is which is a niche thing. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's both it's both and. So the broad strokes are your life matters. Mm-hmm. The specific stroke, then how you actually start coloring in the dots is okay. How. And how how has it mattered looking back? Mm -hmm. How are you effective and maybe ineffective today? And what ultimately can we and I do going forward to make it even better and bigger? So the answer to your question is we have a pre-programmed survey. It goes out to all of our clients. There are maybe 19 questions on it. Some of them you would think of, others that you may not, like... uh, what is the personal mission of the individuals who make up these, this organization? Mm. What ha- when they are doing their work best, what are they doing? When they're falling and missing the mark a little bit, what do you think is happening there? One of my favorite questions is, is what percentage of the audience actually wants to be in the room and why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, all these questions to get a better sense. Then I read through those. I do a little bit of recount online, and then we hop on a call with Roger Staubach or whoever the leader might be to actually get a feel for what they want individually. So if you look at that amount of work, it's it's hours worth of research and recon and mm-hmm. personal conversations to understand what their version of success is for that meeting. So we, we come in, and I always say, man, I want to know your organization so well that they think when O'Leary walks off stage, two things. Number one is he's like a friend. And secondly, we didn't know we had like a chief motivational officer because this guy knows our language, he knows mm-hmm. our pain points, he knows our desires, and he knows what we can do together to get there um, collectively toward real success and significance. So uh, we, we do some pre-work on these clients, and I think that pre-work pays off in their work afterwards. Have there any been, ever been any situations that surprised you when you got there or when you got on stage or like, wow, this wasn't what I was expecting <laughs> or that was a total curveball that um, yeah. I, I wasn't uh, – having come my way so yes two things come to mind immediately the first is i am a very nervous guy before i speak so uh anxieties are all over my body when i'm about to go on stage and i've done this now two thousand times a couple million people live but i'm still very nervous in the early days i was nervous because i wondered how arnold might feel about me Mm -hmm. what would he respect me would he think i was dressed appropriately but all the focus was really about what you might think about me and my message. Mm-hmm. Now the anxiety is around how do I share something that deeply moves you in your singleness, in mm-hmm. your marriage, in your life, in your faith journey, in your work, mm-hmm. in your humanity. I have one hour maybe with you. That's a sacred time for us. Mm-hmm. And I don't, want, I don't want to waste a moment of that. So for me, like, even before we went, went live today, Arnold, I felt it, man. 
I have a friend named Captain Charlie Plum who spent eight years in uh, internment camp in Vietnam after being shot down. Mm-hmm. He is now a speaker. And he says, we all get butterflies, John. Our job is to get the butterflies information. So I like that, man. So I, I try to get them information. The other piece, though, you said, John, ever have a weird audience or an unusual experience and all the time? For me, though, the, the most unusual experience was speaking at a penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Wow. So it's my, actually my favorite audience to be in front of. I, we've had Microsoft and Southwest Airlines and all the big boys. But I, I love going into a prison. There's just something deeply moving about being invited into the sacred space. And this was my first time, Arnold, so I'm nervous, man. I'm nervous always, but I'm really nervous going into a prison <laughs> yeah. the first time. There's a sign in front of a parking spot that says, leave everything you ha- you brought with you in the car. No phones, no keys, nothing. You're coming in naked and exposed, man. You can't hide behind anything. Eventually, you get buzzed in. You're in the general population. I walked down this hallway. They then locked the doors with me and one chaplain and 100 guys. These are lifers. Mm. They're not coming out. About halfway through the message, the lights dim, and then they go dark. There apparently was either an electrical failure or an attempted breakout, which means everything shuts down. They take off the lights. The doors lock, and then you're in with the general population, and no one's coming for you. Okay, so like I'm really, really nervous as there's one blinking red light overhead, a siren sounding, darkness all around. And then from the middle of the room, there's this loud roaring voice I'll never forget that says, keep going, man. Wow. And so in essentially pitch black darkness with one little dim red light shining a little bit of a light ahead of us. I continue to share the story of a little boy getting burned and the individuals who came into that time in my life, these walls that I was chained behind, the difficulties emotionally of that time, of eventually embracing the gift of that life, even a difficult life. And when they finally turn the lights back on and they open up the doors, they uh, they treat these guys poorly so frequently, mm-hmm. almost like animals. Mm-hmm. So they start kind of knocking on tables and chairs and racing them back to the back wall to room, race them back to their, their cells. But I was able to stand back there, and as they're going back, these guys who could have been seen as perceived enemies on the walk-in, different, less than, you know, they, you know, those people, them. As they are walking back to their rooms, all of them are hugging me. Mm. And it was this emotional connection between men who uh, seemingly had very different worlds that we lived in but we're reminded that we're the same Mm -hmm. imperfect and broken, but loved and our lives matter. So for me, like that was such an unusual experience and, and such a redemptive one. Absolutely. And John, when you're talking about that, it, it makes me think this, that were they looking at you and listening to you and going, man, this guy's situation is, was horrible. And, and maybe they make comparisons with their own and they go, if he can do it and he is this way, what is stopping me from changing? Do you think that is like a, a conscious or an unconscious yeah. kind of thought process that goes on? Well, for some of them. And for others, they sit there with their arms crossed and can't wait for the doors to open for them to get back to the misery of their lives. Mm. So the, the chains that tie us all to our past mm-hmm. and to who we aren't, those remain alive and well for all of us. Whether or not you want to tune into how your life could look going forward is only up to you. And Speaking of a different penitentiary where I was speaking one time, I shared the story of my father and his Parkinson's disease Mm. and all that my father has lost. And my dad now is nonverbal. He 
can't move freely, can't drive, he can't earn. He struggles mightily physically, and he's the most joyful, peaceful guy I've ever met. Mm. So I invited the guys in the room that day to make a list of what they're grateful for as a result of being imprisoned. Mm. What do you want to make a list for, guys? And then what I did is I walked over to this upright piano, and I started playing my dad's favorite song, which is Amazing Grace. So now they've got this guy in front of them with no fingers jamming out Amazing Grace with the story of my father's Parkinson's disease and this long list of things my dad is grateful for because of the disease in front of them Mm. and the opportunity of making their list. So after three minutes, I come back to the the room and I say, okay, guys, who wants to share? Who wants to share? And you're an old teacher. Getting kids to share can be a struggle. Getting inmates to share (laughs) is not an easy deal. Good luck. Yeah. (laughs) So no one's participating. In the middle of the room, though, eventually a hand goes up, a man stands up, and then he shares... I'll go. So I say, okay, good. And then he reads what he wrote, and it is this. I, as a result of being imprisoned, am grateful for not one darn thing. And then he sits down, and everybody starts laughing. So I'm like, oh, man, this is not going well. (laughs) So so in class or counseling, you learn the question, anybody else? Anybody else? Mm -hmm. And so from the back of the room, a guy I'll never forget, rusty brown hair, a little bit unkept, stands up and he says, John, I'll I'll share. And so I said, oh, perfect. Thank you. Uh, And then he starts sharing his list. And he said, as a result of being imprisoned, I am grateful for heat in the winter. I never had it outside of here. Three square meals. Never once had that before I was imprisoned. Mm. The opportunity to learn how to read. I did not know how to read before I came in here. Access to the library. Wow. Once a week, access to the internet. Air in the, in the summertime. Never, ever had that growing up. Opportunity for redemption. And he goes on and on and on, Arnold. He had 43 items on his list. Oh, my gosh. And when he was done speaking, he sat down. There was a momentary silence in this room. And then all of a sudden, everybody stood up and started applauding. It's one of the most moving experiences I've ever seen because when the first guy shared the answer to my question, everybody laughed either with or at him. I'm not sure. Or maybe they were laughing at me. When the second gentleman shared the same exercise, the same lousy life that everybody else has in front of them, the entire room rose to their feet to applaud that truth. Mm. So you asked me, John, is it that they're thinking about your life? Ultimately, what I want to do as a presenter, as an author, as a guest on your show is a hold up a mirror. Mm-hmm. and say, hey, guys, hey, ladies, hey, listeners, take a good look. It's not me I'm talking about today. Mm. It's not my dad. It's you. Mm-hmm. It's your life. It's where you've been. It's where you are, and it's where ultimately you want to go next. Your choice, not mine. Super message. Super message. As we look at these different companies you've been involved with, is there a difference sometimes between what management thinks and what workers think and like management says, yeah, I think I think they need X, Y, and Z, and the workers go, no, we really need A, B, and C. Yeah, it's the human condition, <laughs> <laughs> and we see that in marriages, we see it in schools, as you know, you see it in classrooms and prisons, you certainly see it in leadership and in management and in frontline employees. It goes back to how you get kicked off the program today. Mm-hmm. We all think that we are communicating effectively, and most of us are doing this without ever listening. So we put up the PowerPoint, and we put up the objectives, and we put out the direction for the year and what we're going to achieve as managers with your help employees over the next quarter and year to come. Here's the five-year vision, and this is going to be the, you know, what we're going to earn our, for our ESOPs or whatever right. else it might be. 
very seldom, though, listening to the needs and the dreams and the hurts and the longings of the human beings that we're sharing this vision with. Mm. And so the way we connect with people who are Democrats and Republicans, who are black and white, who are behind bars and outside of them managing them, who are frontline employees and their managers, is to have the audacity to ask questions and then to do something really radical. Listen. 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 And then implement it. So I think what Roger Staubach did, what Southwest Airlines do, do you know, they're, they're, I think their stock symbol is still love. Love, baby. So what love <laughs> requires is listening. Right. And that's what great managers, great spouses, great leaders have always known. You know, that, I've got this question down. What are leaders missing? What have they missed in leading people? And you just answered that question. <laughs> how would you answer it? You're, you're asking all the questions today, but as you ask that, oh. how would you answer it? Empathy is a huge one. Being able to identify with the people that you're leading, listening, trying to do something about it. Many times I, I find that it's the little things that people interrupt their day-to-day operation, and it's kind of like there's not enough toilet paper in the bathroom rather than, oh, we're going to focus on this curriculum. It's like, get me some toilet paper in the bathroom, and then I can focus on the curriculum. Let's get, yeah. you know, like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Let's work on this these basic kind of needs, and then we can get down into really how we can belong in this organization, how we can become a part of making it something that people can be proud of and, and helping kids learn from, from a school perspective. That's right. Like that. That's exactly right. And I love the word empathy. So... uh I would love to bring more empathy into our nation, into our classrooms, into our conversations regarding race and politics. And this is from a, a man who's got a fairly firm opinion on all of these things, who has it so firmly that I love sitting with people who have opinions that are radically different than mine. And I think that discourse, true discourse, not lecturing, not pointing, not tweeting, not bullhorning, right. but that true discourse is what is required and missing in the marketplace today. Well, you help understand where people are. You, If you're listening, you can ask questions. What do you mean by that? Right. And really identify, well, I'm, I'm not too far off from where they are right now. My wife and I were talking about this the other day, that it seems like when one party is in control, the other party takes more of a centrist view. If you look right now in the state of Missouri, Republicans are in charge, and many things the Democrats are doing are, quote-unquote, maybe centrist. And um, the same thing in the national government. And it's very interesting how we talk at each other or past each other but not to each other right. and then listen while we're while we're doing those kinds of things so i'm blessed to have had the opportunity for 17 years to speak all around the world and and sometimes people refer to that message as life-changing and they refer to the guy who delivers as as uh, as, as gifted at sharing the message the reason why the message resonates is not because the guy is all that articulate because he's not, as your listeners now can attest to, or that good looking, as your viewers online can attest. Like, So then what is it? I, I spent four years as a hospital chaplain. And as a chaplain, you don't go in with your objectives in mind. As a teacher, you better not go in with your objectives in mind. You better go in with an open heart and the ability to finish almost every sentence with a question mark. Mm-hmm. Almost everything should be asked with a question mark. Jesus, my God, and I think the greatest teacher of all time, frequently taught by Indian sentences, not with explanation points, which we think is wise today. The louder we yell, and the more we get you, we got them, the more we'll prove our point. Well, the greatest teachers remind us to frequently humbly listen and then to reflect. Mm -hmm. So I learned that as a chaplain, and I try to practice that as a speaker. 
Yeah, it's it's a really difficult thing. Transparency is another one I would say about leadership (laughs) that you see you see into me. I'm not. It's it's the mask, what you call the mask, and taking that off and letting people see all of your faults, all of your good things. We always want people to see our good points, but maybe not our bad points. But it's those bad points, I I call them bad points, or points of improvement, that make us who we are and help other people to to identify that we're not perfect. Mm. You know, we're we're a work in progress also. So there's a a far better writer than John O'Leary, a guy named Henry Nowen. Nowen wrote many, many, many books in his life. My favorite is one called the, Re- the Return of the Prodigal Son. Mm. And in this book, he drops a line, and it says, what is most personal is also most sacred and universal. So the things that we think are the ugliness, the thing that you ought to keep completely hidden under covers, uh, under wraps, masked up, is actually the thing when you begin to redeem that and share it authentically for the purposes of loving others well, that they then recognize is the connection between you two and allow you to do something beautiful together. So the the things that are most personal are the things also that are most universal and sacred. Mm. So I think when you bring it back to leaders and this idea of transparency and authenticity, the more we can be who we are, not who others want us to be, the more effective we can be at driving forward change effectively for others. Great point, because many times leaders want to play a play a part or be an actor or an actress rather than take the role and it is what it is That's based right. upon who you are. That's right. Uh, John O'Leary, we've been talking to him. He has a website, johnolearyinspires.com, johnolearyinspires.com. And you also have some... Uh, with not only with the podcast, you have like a Monday morning kind of pick me up, right. uh, get your focus for the week. Uh, discuss a, briefly a little bit about that, John. So everything we do organizationally is about asking the question that was taught to me by Jack Buck. Jack Buck's nightly question was, "What more can I do? What more can I do?" Write at, write down the answer and then do it. So whether it's serving three Girl Scouts or saying yes to the next club or saying yes to the next opportunity to serve the next bigger audience. It's always what more can I do to effectively change their life, to elevate the way, the way they feel about themselves and feel about life itself. So one outgrowth of that was this newsletter. And we started it 14 years ago. It now has several hundred thousand readers from 75 countries, 50 st- Even Alaska tunes in for this one, Arnold, <laughs> if you can imagine. 50 states, Good man. for you guys up there. It, it is free, and it is cool. And uh, in fact, I was almost late for our, our interview because I finished writing today's for, for Monday right before I showed up today. So it's hot off the press, man. A message on love, ready for Valentine's Day, but not the kind of love that we seek, the kind of love we long for, mm-hmm. like a platonic acceptant type, type of love. So uh, if you want to learn more about the newsletter or the work we're doing, one place to check out all that stuff is at readinawe.com. So R-E-A-D, read, N-A-W-E.com. And one of the reasons I drove your audience there is because there's also a free 21-day challenge of hope. And with the pandemic and with divisiveness and with prejudice and with all the challenges we face personally and professionally, to be reminded that there is a, a pragmatic, rational reason for hope in our lives, that the best is in front of us, is a good message and a timely one and a needed one. So if you want that free message coming into your lives, just go to readinaw.com. Readinaw.com, folks, R-E-A-D-I-N-A-W-E.com. Hope, hope, love. Great things that 
need to keep us going on a daily basis. Also, JohnO'LearyInspires.com. And if you have a group out there, maybe you're listening to this and you're a governmental, a business corporation, educational institution, any kind of maybe a church group, something like that. Maybe it's a a Girl Scout troop or a Brownie (laughs) troop, and you want John to speak, to inspire and give some advice of hope, of saying no as much as you say yes, a message of joy. These are the kinds of things you want to have them hear. John is a great person to schedule, and you can go to johnolearyinspires.com. John, going to put you on the spot here. Give me a 30-second kind of um, last last word here. Mm. So my, my favorite last word is it's not the limelight that I crave or the radio broadcast. It, it's the one-to-one connection. My, my favorite stories come in from the back of the room when people come up to me afterwards and say, hey, it's nothing like you, but... And then they fill in the blank with their divorce, their bankruptcy, their mm-hmm. challenge, their dream, their goal, their aspiration, what they want to do, the garden they want to plant, the little things. So I, I love the one-to-one connection. And my favorite work we're doing going forward is to do that with kids. I'm with you today because you invited me, because I had amazing leadership in my parents, because the healthcare community in St. Louis is awesome. A global community prayed. Jack Buck showed up. But I'm with you because strangers showed up and made a difference for me. And now my drive and our organizational drive is to be like that for others. So we, we now travel around the country and around the world being that stranger, loving others well. And that's the good word, man. So, yeah, I love speaking. I love selling books. I love doing radio shows. But the real drive is to love one well. Love one well, folks. What, what differences are you making in your life and the lives of your family and those around you? Great stuff, John. Thanks for coming on St. Louis in Tune. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure to have you on. Thank man. you, Arnold. Well done. So JohnO'LearyInspires.com, check that out. Also, read in awe, awe.com, and you can get more information about that. That's all for this hour. We thank you for listening. Don't forget, when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. For St. Louis in Tune, studio manager Derek Abbott, co-host Mark Langston, I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine. You're listening to the U.S. Radio Network. <laughs>